The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me in your Bible, if you have it, to Luke chapter 8 at verse 22. The text for this Sunday's sermon was decided weeks ago, and as I thought about it the last week or two, I thought a very appropriate text to come to at such a time as this. Luke chapter 8 at verse 22, which is the account of Jesus and and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee in a storm. Here, as I read God's holy word. One day, he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who is this then, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding into your word. Speak to our hearts and our minds, we pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen. They were planning to cross the Sea of Galilee. To the fishermen among them, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, this would be like a typical morning commute to work. They had been fishing on this lake for much of their lives. But the trip turned out much differently than they had expected. At 700 feet below sea level, the Sea of Galilee is subject to violent storms, especially wind storms. To the east of the sea are mountainous regions where the cooler air can at times rush down upon the sea from the heights in a, in a sudden wind squall, which whips up the waters into powerful waves. The fishermen would have experienced these events in the past, but today the storm was to be especially ferocious. The problem that the disciples had during this experience was that they were diverted from trusting Jesus because of the storm. They ended up looking at the storm instead of looking at Jesus. One of the most frequent commands of the Bible is the command, fear not. The command, do not be afraid. But don't we all know from experience that it is no small thing to face our fears with trust in our Lord? There are many tests and trials in every believer's life. Storms, both small and ordinary, we might say, and storms, 
large and life-changing. Every one of them is an opportunity for us to see the glory of Jesus Christ revealed in some way and to know more deeply Christ's grace and love, his, his power and sustaining presence in our lives. What do we learn from this account of Jesus calming the storm? I would like us to see three points. The first is that Jesus leads his people into storms. Secondly, Jesus calls us to fight fear with faith. And then number three, Jesus rules the storms of life. First then, Jesus leads his people into storms. In verse 22, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and the story is that he fell asleep and there was a windstorm, as we've heard. It is Jesus, our Lord, who initiated this trip across the lake. It is our Lord who sovereignly leads us and takes us into the storms of life. Crossing the sea was part of the disciples' obedience to Jesus. It was part of following him. Here's a very key principle of the Christian life. Sometimes we are in difficulties because of our own sin and foolishness. Of course, even these times are under God's sovereign and providential hand. Even then we can say God has led us all the way. But there are also times that the Lord himself brings us or leads us, we would say, into difficulties, into hardships, into trials. Contrary to the heresies of the health and wealth prosperity gospel, the Christian life is no guarantee of immunity from the sufferings of this present life. First Peter 4.12 says it this way, and remember, Peter was one of the ones, one of the fishermen who was in the boat that day. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And he goes on to say, Rejoice, rejoice, because the glory of Christ is being revealed in some way. Sometimes with Christians, especially when someone first comes to faith in Christ, they can think something like this. I've come to God now. I've given my life to Jesus Christ now. I'm trusting in him. He's turned my life around and I'm walking with the Lord. So, so certainly nothing really bad will happen to me now, right? Certainly everything will go well in my life. Of course, we know that the Bible does not teach that. That is not right. Christians go through all kinds of sufferings. In fact, sometimes Christians go through suffering specifically because of their faith in Jesus. If you know even a little about the history of Christian missionary work throughout the ages, you'll know that those on the front lines are often those who suffer most for the gospel. Jesus leads his people into the storms. Really, this is just another way of saying that Jesus tests our faith. Test, not in the way we tend to think of that world as taking a test to see what's there or God finding out something about our faith, but test 
in the sense that he strengthens and grows our faith in him by putting us in situations that we are called upon to trust in him, to exercise our faith. What does Jesus say to the disciples in verse 25 after he calms the storm? He says, where is your faith? This was a gentle rebuke to them. Their faith was weak. Their faith had been overwhelmed by fear. But Jesus knew that they needed this experience of the storm. And so also, our sovereign, loving Savior and Lord, Scripture assures us that our Savior leads every believer into the storms of his or her life by his sovereign purposes and will. Here's how one commentator describes this truth. Whenever we are tossed about by life's troubles, we need to remember that God is still sovereign. He is never taken by surprise. Whatever troubles we are facing, God has brought us to this point in our lives, and he is using our present experiences to make us more like Jesus Christ. That's describing the tests of faith. He's using these experiences to deepen our faith, to teach us more what it is to trust Jesus Christ our Lord. J.C. Ryle, the evangelical Anglican bishop of the 1800s, describes God's testing in this way. He says, By affliction, God teaches us many precious lessons with which without it we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness. He draws us to the throne of grace. He purifies our affections. Our affections are the things that we love, the things that we desire, the things that we live for and dream for. And Ryle is saying, by afflictions, God purifies our affections, our loves. Certainly, this odd experience of not being able to do the normal things that we do, no sports on the TV, no shows to go to, no gathering together in groups. Certainly, it's a time to reflect upon what do we really love most in our lives. God uses afflictions, he's saying, to purify our affection. And he goes on, he uses it to show us, to wean us from the world and make us long for heaven. And he, con- he concludes his quote with these words, In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. That's a quote from Psalm 119. It is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. We may not know in what way God is using the storms in this life. That may be hidden from us. But on that resurrection morning, we will be able to thank the Lord for all of these things. And so Jesus leads his people into the storm as an opportunity to exercise our faith and to teach us anew his grace, his love, and his power in our lives. But secondly, Jesus calls us to fight fear with faith, to fight fear with faith. Verse 23 says, And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. 
Jesus is sound asleep. Mark tells us, he's the only gospel writer that tells us that Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the boat. Probably, he's exhausted by the demands of constant ministry, which shows, by the way, shows us Jesus' genuine humanity. He had a real body that got tired. But also, his sleep may say something about his perfect faith in his Father's care. But as he sleeps, the disciples are busy. The storm is terrifying. You can imagine the waves breaking over the boat at times, filling it with water. They're in danger. The experienced fishermen would have been telling everyone what to do, all hands on deck. But still, all their efforts are in vain, and it seems that they are close to disaster. And so, as a last resort, they cry out to Jesus, certainly the right response. In fact, faith in Jesus is the central response we are called to in life's trials. The problem with the disciples is that their faith was overwhelmed to some degree by their fears. And thus, Jesus' question, where is your faith? Don't we all relate to the disciples and their weak faith? We're like the father who cried out to the Lord, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. How do we prevent our genuine faith in Jesus from being overwhelmed by the fears and the concerns of life? Or at the other end of things, how do we prevent our faith from being overwhelmed by the pleasures and comforts and idolatries of this present world. There's danger on both ends. The answer to both is this. We must look more to Jesus and his word than we look at the storm. We must look more at Jesus, at the promises of his word, at the teaching of the Bible, than at the storms around us or at our own lives, at our own hearts. Think of it. The disciples had Jesus' word. In verse 22, he had said, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Jesus had given them the command. They could rest in that. And the disciples had Jesus' presence with them. Yes, he was asleep, but he was with them in the boat. He had spoken, but they had allowed the voice of the storm to silence the voice of the Lord. Mark records in his account of this event that their cry to Jesus was in these words, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You see, they are beginning to doubt whether Jesus really cared for them. They are losing sight of Jesus' love for them. Yet, the very reason that Jesus was in the boat was because of his love for them. In fact, the very reason that Jesus had come into the world in his incarnation was because of his love for them and for us. And the reason that Jesus would go to the cross was because of his love for us. There it is, the call of God to trust Jesus, to trust his word that we have in Scripture, to trust in Jesus' presence and his power in our lives 
even in the storm. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10 says it this way, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Doesn't that verse envision that there's a time when all seems dark? Let him who walks in darkness. That signifies a time of hardship, not only externally, but also, most likely, also internally. A test of the soul, a test of our faith. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. There are experiences like that in the Christian life when all seems dark. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. How is it that we are to face our fears about the coronavirus? Is your faith being overwhelmed by fears? Maybe you're watching the news nonstop. It's tempting to do that, isn't it? Maybe you're reading all the articles about all the possible worst-case scenarios about how this might unfold. It's certainly fine to keep informed about the news, but there's a danger. There can be excess There can be, in a sense, we might say morbid curiosity about these things. And what God calls us to do is to focus more on God's word than on the winds and the waves or the virus. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, about about being anxious about your life, about worrying about having food and clothes. He's talking about there, and he says to the disciples there, look at the birds, he says, how God takes care of them. Look at the lilies of the field. Doesn't your heavenly Father feed and clothe them? Are you not of more value than they? Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? There's that same kind of exhortation, O you of little faith. Jesus is saying, trust God, trust his word of promise to provide for you. Trust now that Jesus has died and has risen and now promises us his presence and his keeping power, even if the very worst does happen in this life. We have his provision, we have his grace eternally and forever because we belong to him. Hear this truth. It is frequently a fight of faith to continue to hold to the truth of God's love and care for you when your boat is filling with water. Listen to God's declaration of his love for his people in this kind of stormy time in Isaiah 43. The Lord says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. What a declaration! What a gift! that we have God's word in the storm and we can put our trust in him. Well, our third point is that Jesus rules the storms of life. 
We see the storm, we see the disciples in danger and crying out, and then at the end of verse 24, we read, And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. Jesus rules the storms of life, and there was a calm. The word in this verse for rebuke is a strong word, and it's the same word that has been used repeatedly to describe Jesus rebuking the demons and the sicknesses when he healed someone. It gives the idea that Jesus is subduing the powers of darkness and bringing order out of chaos. This age is a stormy age, and that can all be traced back to the Garden of Eden. But Jesus merely gives a word of command, and the chaos is stilled. So for a moment, as it were, the veil is drawn back and the disciples get a brief glimpse of Jesus' glory, who he is, his power, and his awesome majesty. He speaks and stills the storm. No wonder that they ask in verse 25, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? You see, the disciples are asking the central question of life. Who is this Jesus? Luke, in his gospel, is confronting us with this question again and again. Who is Jesus Christ? Look at what he says. Look at what he does. Look at his miracles. Look at his integrity. Look at his person and work. Jesus' calming of the storm was a genuine an immediate miracle that revealed his divine nature, his deity, the fact that he is the Son of God with omnipotent power over this universe. No wonder that for the disciples, their fear of the storm vanished. Of course, it was calm now. However, that fear was replaced by a different kind of fear, by reverential awe. They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? It's important to know something of the Old Testament background to this event. God alone in the Old Testament we find again and again in the Psalms, God alone has the power and authority to rule the sea. And the sea in the Old Testament is typically a symbol of evil and chaos. Psalm 65, 7, God stills the roaring of the seas. Psalm 89, 9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Jesus' power to command the storm is a revelation of who he is. It's a revelation of his glory, the glory of God. And that should move all of us to worship him. That should move us to trust our Savior's loving and sovereign power over the storms of our lives. Now, we know that Jesus doesn't always or even often miraculously calm the storms of life. But we do know that his power is always at work to strengthen his people to persevere and to give us grace to walk with him in the midst of the storms. If it were God's will, he could simply rebuke the coronavirus immediately and it would be gone from the earth. But Scripture tells us that there are deep 
deep purposes of God to somehow reveal his glory, even through the evils and the chaos that we see throughout this present age. He tells us that his ways are beyond tracing out. And he uses other language like that, Romans 11 at the end. And our only right response is to worship such a glorious God and trust in the one who came into this world of evil and suffering and sorrow to bear our sins and to rise victoriously for our full redemption. Jesus rules the storms and he triumphed over the greatest storm, the storm of sin and death and hell on our behalf. Earlier in the service, we sang the beautiful hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Maybe you noticed the language about God being our refuge in the storm. Wesley writes, While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Charles Wesley penned these verses. We don't know when he wrote it, but we do know that when he and his brother John sailed to Georgia as young Oxford College graduates, they were struck by the behavior of the Moravians, these evangelical believers who were with them on the ship. John records that in one of the great storms they encountered in their transatlantic crossing, everyone else was trembling with fear and crying out with terror in the midst of one of those great storms. But he observed that the Moravians were calmly singing hymns. It struck him, and he was moved by it. And we know that John's missionary work in Georgia for those few years was a a complete failure. And he returned to England writing these words, I went to Georgia to convert the Indians, but who shall convert me? And it wasn't long after that return to England that Wesley had what is now known as the famous Aldersgate Street experience when he found his heart strangely warmed by the preaching of the gospel. And Charles, likewise, came to saving faith in Christ soon after that. And he immediately began writing hymns. And for the rest of his life, Charles Wesley wrote many, many hymns until even on his deathbed, he was dictating a final hymn to his wife. Life is filled with storms, but Jesus rules the storms. Can you truly say with Wesley's wonderful lyrics that your trust in all of life is in Jesus Christ alone, that he's your refuge for your salvation, for, for the forgiveness of your sins, for your hope of eternal life, for your strength and perseverance in all of life's trials. Listen to the second verse. We sang this as well. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. What a picture of trusting in Jesus Christ. Maybe feeling helpless, maybe feeling isolated and alone, 
maybe feeling without comfort, with your hope draining away, with your head defenseless. But then there's that statement of the shadow of God's wing. Be assured of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. He leads you and loves you in the storm. Keep trusting in his word. Keep looking to Jesus Christ, your Lord, and worship the God of grace whose glory is somehow revealed even in the storms. Amen. Father, we ask that you would sustain your people in this time, that you would build us and strengthen us in your word, that you would help us in our weak faith to cling to Jesus Christ, to cry out to you, to see the glory of God revealed in what Jesus has already done, that he has done all that is needed for our salvation, and now we rest in him. We hide under the shadow of your wings. You are our refuge and our fortress, a very present help in trouble. We thank you that God is our refuge and strength and that you promise to guide us, O Lord, throughout our lives. Help us to cling to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.